This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, Women to Watch. Here's your host, Sue Rocco. Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to another week of Women to Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. My name is Sue Rocco, and we have a great show for you tonight. Uh, We also love hearing from you, so please be sure to connect with us at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. And our guest coming up this evening is Claire Biermas. And Claire is the Vice President of Customer Insight and Innovation at Amerisource Bergen. Uh, Before I bring Claire on, I want to give a quick shout out to Jefferson University Hospital, Mount St. Joseph Academy, and Baird Financial, all who are sponsors of the show and support our mission. And stay tuned as well for Dr. Marianne Ritchie, who will join me later in the show for our Health Watch Uh, She'll be talking about the latest information, important information around breast cancer and some stories about her own family's experience and loss. Well, I'd like to welcome to the show, Claire. Thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I feel so honored to be here. Well, thank you. And I'm glad you made the drive over. Yes, luckily it was easy. And it was easy for Mm -hmm. both of us today. It was a good day for traffic. Um, So um, if you're just tuning in, I'm with Claire Biermas, Vice President of Customer Insight and Innovation for Marisource Bergen. And I wanted to start with your upbringing and uh, I guess... Not really so much an upbringing in New York. You were born in Rockville Center, New York, went to grade school in Long Island, and then made your way to Philadelphia. That's right. So tell me what you remember of your early years there in New York. Well, um, you know, growing up on Long Island, it was just, it was a really special place. Both of my parents are one of six children. So I had a ton of aunts and uncles and a lot of cousins, and we all tended to um, live in the same area. I went to grade school with a lot of my cousins. Um, The neighborhood was just filled with children. I I laugh, I tell people now that the school was, you know, in every class there was either a Galligan or a Fitzpatrick. (laughs) Um, And it just was um, a really wonderful community to grow up in. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was really important um, because you know, when I was at a very young age, I'm, I'm one of five children. Um, my mother, um, you know, started, my parents started out in, in a two-bedroom apartment in Flushing, Queens. My mom was 24 years old, and she had a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a newborn set of twins. Wow. So She was a baby herself. She was a baby herself. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they worked really, really hard um, when we were young. And there was, I can imagine, a ton of, of juggling that went on with with that family and, and trying to take care of all the kids and my dad, um, you know, working multiple jobs to make sure that he was, you know, providing for us. And, and we got to move to a really nice um, neighborhood in Merrick uh, when I was about four years old. And, um, 
you know, we started to just really um, settle in there. And as you can imagine, like back in the day for me, it was, you know, you can go out and play and come home when the, when the street lights come on. Right. And, <laughs> well, you know, you're not that old, yeah, but, that's, yeah, yeah. but that's pretty much the way it was. Come home for dinner. That's right. Come yeah. home for dinner. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's just was a ton of, of kids t- to play with. And all of the parents were looking out for all of the kids. You know, you're hopping mm-hmm. from house to house. Yeah. Um, and that was really an important community to have. Uh, because when I was around seven years old, my uh, my four-year-old sister, Megan, passed away. Um, so she got stricken with meningitis, and this was before there was, you know, a, a vaccine for oh, that. Goodness. And um, it was a real tragedy in our family and in our community. How old were you? I was about seven years old. Okay. Um, and the reason why I bring that up is because it not only, uh, gosh, the, the loss of my sister really started to shape me as mm-hmm. a as a person but i think one of the beautiful things that i learned from that is just the value of community um there was not an evening where there was not someone in my home whether it was an aunt or an uncle or a neighbor or a priest or a nun you know just trying to show support for my family um i think at 7 years old it was really hard for me to understand what was going on at the time and i didn't really start to process the loss of my sister until I started to go through adolescence. But I just remember feeling loved. Um, And I remember being embraced by that neighborhood and by all of my aunts and uncles. And that starts to, you learn something from that. You learn the value of connection with other people and how important it is to receive love from other people when you need it, but also to give back when you feel like there's someone or something that's happened in your community that you should be there for. Yeah. Um, and I've carried that lesson of, of connection with your community um, and your friends and your family. And I'm like violently protective of that um, mm-hmm. because I just believe it's so important. Yeah. You know, at seven, you, as you said, intellectually, you didn't really understand what was going right. on. But one day your sister was there and right. the next day she wasn't. Right. So that loss probably never leaves you. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, again, I, I think it was it was something that I understood what happened. But I think what's interesting, I went to Catholic school. Mm-hmm. So my seven-year-old brain was like, well, you know, she's with God. and In heaven. In heaven with Mary and Joseph, and she's with another family. And so I never really felt like she was not safe. Mm. And that was very comforting to me. And I remember, like, as I grew up, uh, I feel very thankful that I have a spiritual foundation Mm. in my life. Um, I've, you know, definitely gone through points in my life where I've questioned, you know, what what does my religion bring to my life? What do I really believe? Mm. Um, And I always just come back to that we are part of something greater than anything that we can possibly comprehend. Right. Um, And I feel very centered in that. Um, but I didn't really get to that until I was older. But when I was seven years old, I felt grounded mm-hmm. in it even still. Yeah. As you that felt, makes sense. <clears throat> yes, like a, a, even though you lost your sister, you felt a sense of security. Yes. Yeah, which is very important, right, yes. at, at a young age. Mm-hmm. Um, was that one of the reasons for the move then to Philadelphia? Yeah, I think, um, you know, if I, I don't want to speak for my parents, but, you know, I think when I 
if I was to step back and think about if that was me and I had lost a child, I would probably go through a process where I would want a bit of a fresh start mm -hmm. or figure out a way to um, find joy right. again, right? Yeah, right? And people go through, they, they, they choose different paths mm -hmm. um, when you have something that's so tragic happen to you. Um, my parents at the two years after she passed away had decided that they wanted to have another child. And so they gave birth to my sister, Christine, mm -hmm. um, who was one of my best friends. I'm going to give a little <laughs> shout out to her. Christine, I hope she's Christine. listening. Um, and, um, you know, she was born. And then my father's uh, company that he worked for, he was a salesman at the time. And their headquarters was in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And he came home and he said, you know, there's a there's a development that's going up and, you know, maybe we should look at these houses. And I think my mother was thinking, you know, this might be a nice way to gain a fresh start. And I think as much as that community was amazing to us and supportive of us, I think the fear was always that we would be viewed as the family that lost the child. Mm. And I don't think that they wanted to be viewed that way forever. Right. I think I think that there was probably many components of that wasn't the entire driving factor, mm -hmm. but I think it was, you know, one of the motivating factors in in the move. Yeah. I think sometimes so. you 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 don't know why you're being directed in a certain right place, but you go with it because yeah. you you know, your gut tells you to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Um, if you're just tuning in, I'm, I'm joined by Claire Biermas, and Claire is the Vice President of Customer Insight and Innovation at Amerisource Bergen. Um, and we're just talking about her background, and she was very generous to share um, a loss that she had at the age of seven. Um, you went on to uh, Marymount, so another Catholic school, yep. right? Mm -hmm. And um, you, you ha majored in communications. Tell me what your goal was at that point, what you wanted to do with that. Yeah, so um, I, in high school, in, in middle school and high school, um, I started to get very interested in music. Oh, okay. So um, I taught myself how to play the guitar. Um, you know, when we moved from Long Island to Pennsylvania, you know, it was, I had to, I was sort of like isolated and I, it started my journey on figuring out like, who am I? Right. And then, um, you know, I started to get into something new and music is a form of communication. So it was like a natural um, evolution for me to pick that as my major. OK, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll learn a little bit more about what you were doing uh, during your college years. We'll be right back. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Welcome back. We're joined by Claire Biermas, Vice President of Customer Insight and Innovation for Amerisource Bergen. And uh, uh, we were just talking before the break about your years at Marymount, uh, which is in New York, I mm -hmm. should mention. And it was an all-girls school at the time? 
No, it was actually the, the year that I first attended was the first year that they had opened it up okay. um, and welcomed Welcome the boys. Yes. Yeah. Were you happy about that? Or yeah, were you yeah? I, I mean I was sort of indifferent. The yeah, high school I yeah. went to was, you know, was not an, an all girls school. So okay. I was a bit indifferent. I think what attracted me to it was how small the classes were. Like I'm not the type of person who's gonna thrive at a college where I'm in an auditorium with, you know, a hundred people. Okay. I needed yeah. a smaller kind of class size. And I loved the fact that it was in New York City. I really desperately wanted to live in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like I was kind of pursuing my my art of being, you know, a singer songwriter. Okay. And um, when I first visited the school, I felt like I was like visiting fame. Like I walked in the door, and there were people sort of like dancing in the hallways, and <laughs> and I just thought, you know, this is. I just was drawn to it. Yeah. Um, and uh, but but the the men being welcomed to the college was not a key factor. Okay. In my yeah, decision. In your decision. <laughs> so did you participate in theater then? Um, I didn't. I did not. I chose to do communications because um, I have a, a passion for understanding human beings and what drives them to do what they do. Because at the time, what my passion was, was writing songs about it. Oh, wow. And, um, and I thought if I majored in communication, I would better understand what the other options are in the world if my music career did not take off. Take off. Yeah. Um, I am a bit of a storyteller at heart. I come from a big Irish family. And if you know anything about big Irish families, they are yes. fabulous storytellers. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, and so I felt like that that was a natural kind of progression for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a lot of classes that I took that taught me about how different cultures communicate with each other, mm-hmm. both verbally and non-verbally, um, how stories are told to share wisdom, right? So I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Joseph Campbell and the, and the hero's journey. No. Um, Joseph Campbell was a great academic, and he studied um, the power of myth and how human beings from um, from our you know inception would still would tell stories to each other. Um, about um, different people overcoming obstacles, and they would tell those stories in order to, um, you know, communicate different um, ideas or thoughts about how we should live, okay. like in humanity. Um, and there's a very specific, um, I don't know. I guess I don't know. I don't know how to explain it, but there's a very specific trajectory that good stories um, go on. Um, Star Wars is a great example of that. You know, you sort of live in your ordinary world and something happens that calls you to adventure. Mm -hmm. And then you go on your adventure and you meet different mentors along the way and you overcome obstacles and you, you know, you, um, you know, you might have to fight a monster or something in your life. But it all sort of teaches you, you come out on the other side, kind of reborn in whether it be wisdom or learning how strong you are and becoming more confident and you reach these like different thresholds in your life. And, and to me, um, I love that. And they, that, that trajectory works because it's how everybody's life is. Right. right. So it's, it is very relatable because that's, that's sort of everyone's journey. That's right. Um, And so to me, communication was a natural place for me to be. 
academically so I could kind of learn and hone my own personal craft. Okay. So what was your very first job right out of school? So my very first job right out of school, um, ironically, well, I waitressed okay. for a little bit, right? <laughs> Which so, we all did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> at that at the time that I graduated was when, um, like, the big internet boom sort of started to implode. Yeah. And, um, you know, we had a bit of a recession. So, yeah, I had a ton of interviews. I interviewed at the Today Show. I interviewed at Dateline. I interviewed, like, at a ton of places where I thought, like, I wanted to be, How did you, you know, get those interviews? Crasser. Because that's a tough yeah. So I have to get those, those, you know, people, right? Okay. So yeah. I had worked at other places where I connected with other folks and those folks, new folks. And that, that okay. kind of got me that. So networking is so important. Yeah, um, absolutely. To any job progression. Right. Um, but unfortunately there were no spots available. People were laying people off at the time. And so, yeah. you know, I just kind of waitress through and I ended up going home for a weekend and I was talking to my friend, Colleen. Colleen. Let's give a yes. shout out to Colleen White. Sh- that's right. <laughs> um, so, and she was working at Wyeth Pharmaceuticals at the time mm-hmm. in their marketing department. And she was like, well, you know what? You need a paycheck. You know, let me introduce you to some people. And there was, they were hiring in the medical affairs department for like an executive assistant. And I just kind of took the job as like an interim right. to, you know, figuring out what I was going to do. But that was my entrance into healthcare. Okay. So I ended up working at Wyeth um, and there, you know, they just kept kind of giving me more and more responsibility. I was hosting scientific advisory boards. I was putting together events to invent, to uh, invite certain experts to come in and talk about disease states. And I just, I got hooked got in like bug. a really weird way yeah. um, that in a way that I didn't really expect. And I became very, very curious about healthcare. I mean, you could probably tie it back to some of my, you know, like my experience with my sister's experience right. and just, you know, saving people's lives or, or wanting to figure out wanting to figure out how to cure thing, how to right. how to cure certain diseases. And yep. um, it, t- it touched a chord in me um, and and I became very curious about it. So then that job made me qualified to moved back to New York, and I worked in the healthcare practice of Burson Marsteller in their public relations in practice. The, okay, and that was, was that in 2008 or not? Uh, no, that was 2000, and I want to say 2004. Oh, four, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, um, so then I worked there for a while, and um, you know, I did a lot of PR for manufacturers, and then uh, I decided to move back to Pennsylvania. So I've been back and forth, back and forth, back yeah. and forth. Um, I was recruited by Amerisource Bergen right after okay. that, and I have been there ever since. And you've been there ever since, which yes. is how many years? It's um, going on year thirteen. Okay. Yep. One of the ways you describe what you do there mm-hmm. is um, is a lot of traveling mm-hmm. all across the country and meeting with customers yep. and determining really what are their values and what are their needs. Right. 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 Um, First of all, the traveling. It's a lot of traveling. Your yeah. mom, we should mention, you have two daughters, 9 and 11. I do. And fortunately, your husband is home he with is. them, which mm-hmm. gives you peace of mind. Um, but that traveling, is it stressful for you, or do you feel energized and, and kind of look forward to it, knowing that the girls are home with, with their dad? Yeah, I think it depends. Um, when I have back-to-back um, travels, it starts to get uh, stressful, and it's mostly stressful because I just I miss my family. Yeah. Right. right. It's, I'm I'm happier sleeping in my own bed. Right. Um, waking up to you know my husband and my my children's faces, 
But it is nice to be able to see different parts of the country mm-hmm. and um, talk to you know different people that we serve, right? So getting in and talking to your customers and immersing yourself in their environment and getting to know who they are makes you a smarter strategic partner. And so bringing that back um, is really exciting. Um, but definitely having Kevin home with the girls yep. makes the traveling. Makes you able to sleep yes, when you're away. Absolutely. When we come back, I want to talk to you about human-centered service design, a yes. method that you use. You're listening to Women to Watch. We'll be right back. Do you have a financial advisor who you trust that looks at you as more than just a number? At the Foley Hillsley Group, that person is Kristen Hillsley. Kristen's team has a different approach to managing your wealth called the Panorama Process. This unique process helps you obtain your financial goals easily because it's more than just investments, it's about you. To learn more, visit their website at fhbaird.com or call 610-238-6636. The Foley-Hilsey Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird & Company, Incorporated Member SIPC. Log on to fhbaird.com to learn more. That's fhbaird.com. So if you need a financial advisor you can trust, call Kristen Hillsley at 610-238-6636. That's 610-238-6636. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. I'm talking with Claire Biermas, Vice President of Customer Insight and Innovation for Amerisource Bergen. And I wanted to talk a little bit about um, a method that you use in your um, your role at Amerisource Bergen, and it's called human-centered design. What is that? Yes. So human-centered design is a is an innovation methodology. Um, sometimes people call it design thinking, um, but in essence, it's grounded in immersing yourself in your customer's environment and using empathy to understand who they are as people, but also not just kind of asking them what they want, but being observant of who they are in order to understand what's working about your service or not working about your service. Wow. So it's anthropological in nature. So for the researchers out there, um, we, we use ethnography, which is essentially doing that. Like you're um, if you want to understand how a lion hunts, don't go to the zoo and watch it. You got to go to the jungle mm. and you just kind of, you got to watch them you in watch. their own environment. Right, right. And so it's really just rooted in that. It's going to your customer and really understanding who they are as human beings. That's why they call it human centered. Mm. Um, and then you use those insights to design products and services that meet their needs or exceed their expectations or delight them. Um, And sometimes the insights that you're trying to get to in human-centered design 
are the unarticulated needs of your customer. That's why it's so important to observe their behavior because you could ask your customer, you know, what do you need from me? And there are things that they might be able to articulate to you, but there are things that they're not, they don't even know that they need or they're unable to explain to you that you will pick up on when you're just watching them work. And so there's a lot of um, innovation consultancies that are out there. Some folks may have heard of um, Continuum Innovation or IDEO or Frog or like, like there's a lot of um, big design consultancies that use this, this methodology um, in order to help companies design new products and services. That's where the innovation part comes in. But um, it's really grounded in your customer's experience. So really getting underneath what is it like to work with your product or work with your service. And then you bring that back to your organization and you educate your business leaders on what it's like to be your customer. Right. Um, so tell me when you come back from, you know, being away and gathering mm -hmm. all this, this great new information and you sit down with your team, um, leadership executives and and perhaps they're not embracing what you're bringing. Yeah. You know, how do you deal with that? What is Well, your... I think I, I try and um, I, I really try and like tap into my storytelling, right? Okay. So yeah. one of the things that businesses really lean on is data, right? So we pull lots of data about our customers, um, you know, quantitative buying data, how much mm. do we, how many units did we sell today or, you know, how, what's our revenue look like, like things like that. And what I try to explain is like this information is different than data. And the story that I usually tell is if you ask me about um, my house, I will give you data about, you know, it's square footage, um, you know, what type of, uh, or like what, what my electric bill looks like, um, maybe the value of my home compared to the comps in my neighborhood. And that's data. But if you ask me what makes my house a home, I'm going to tell you stories about my husband and my children. And I'm gonna tell you stories about how my neighbors come over and we hang out on the deck in the summer and the kids play manhunt in the background or in the backyard. And those are the types of insights that companies um, will need to use to say, okay, well, how does my product get used in this home? What does it mean to the people that live there? Um, so I think what I try to do is sit with our executives and tell those stories and evoke the empathy for our customers, for our leaders to get to know who our customers are as people. Mm -hmm. Because you can't, you have to have data, right? You, businesses have to have data to make business decisions. But it's also really important to, marry that data with what's going on with the lives of your customers. Right. It's kind of information versus emotion. Yes, right? yes. And look, I've, I've come up against, I've been in tons of meetings where people have kind of looked at me and said, okay, you know, this is like the fluffy stuff, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but you have to show them how the fluffy stuff, stuff applies to new ideas mm -hmm. and then how you use the fluffy stuff to design a product or a service that works for your customers. And I think over time, you know, I've convinced enough folks internally to invest in certain ideas or improvements to certain services where now we get to point at it and say, well, look how successful that mm. is. And it's successful because we designed it with our customers. Yeah, I think so many times um, businesses get 
very wrapped up in themselves, right? Like we're people are naturally self-centered, right? Well, like we think we know what's the best for 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 everybody, um, and I think it's Im- important to um, get a reality check. Um, and I think some of the insights that we bring back is a little bit of that reality check. Mm-hmm. And naturally, some people are going to react really wonderfully to that. They're going to love the insight and they're going to be able to work with that, especially real creative people. If you're a real creative type, you are going to be super thirsty for that kind of information about right. your customers. Um, if you're not so creative um, and you're just you're really struggling to figure out, OK, well, what do we do about it? Um, the information can be daunting yeah which um, is why there's people like you to, you know that have that curiosity yes and ask the right questions right. um I, you, you have been with Ameristers Bergen for quite a while and worked your way up to mm-hmm. a vice president role yeah. I want to talk to you about the other women you know within the company and perhaps other companies that you've seen and really get your perspective on why you think women get stuck mm. um, when they really are wishing that they were in in a leadership position. What is it that keeps them from kind of reaching higher or asking for that, that raise, that promotion? Yeah. Well, I think it's the typical things, right? I think that we women in general get torn between um, wanting to really dive deep into our careers and really give our careers a hundred percent. But then you also start to have families Mm -hmm. and you want to give your families a hundred percent. And I think when women um, get to that point in their life, if they choose to, you know, get married and have a family, that's when things start to get really, really complicated. So I think um, managing through that is really important. And I don't know whether this will be controversial or not, but it, I feel very, very strongly that having um, a partnership with your spouse and being able to have that sort of like teamwork um, it's funny like that, that you had to worry that that's controversial. <laughs> well, I know. I mean, you just never know like how people are going to take things. But right. I really think that it, you really have to make sure that you are um, managing your time well with your spouse. I think a lot of women have to take on a ton of responsibility at work. Mm-hmm. And they also take on a ton of responsibility at home. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, the men need to step up um, and help out. And not just respect each other's time. Yes, 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 absolutely. Be that partner. Yeah. Um, I think that that is very helpful when you're at that stage in your life. And for Kevin and I, you know, that was, it was a constant conversation. Um, It was always, you know, okay, where are we now? Like, what do you need me to do? What do I need you to do? Um, To the point where, you know, Kevin made a sacrifice um, and gave up his career to be home with our children so that I could continue to, to flourish um, but he has a tremendous, he has an equally important job mm-hmm. than I do. Right. Um, raising our girls and being there for them um, is important. But I also think that for women in any corporation, you need to find and connect with those mentors and other advocates for you. So not just somebody that's going to sit down and kind of listen to you and hear you, but someone that's going to actively advocate on your behalf and I have been very lucky enough to have a number of those folks in my career. Um, and they, the majority of them happen to be men. Um, you know, my male colleagues stepping in and advocating on my behalf and giving me opportunities so because when we, they believed yeah, When we say me. that, advocating for someone, that means when an opportunity comes up that they say, you know what, Claire would be the best suited for this. Absolutely. Yeah. 
or if there's a meeting um, or an event where there's a big platform, um, I've had plenty of folks say Claire should take the stage because she's got a good message. It's up to me to perform, right? right? I'm mm -hmm. accountable for performing. Mm -hmm. But I've had plenty of folks say, well, Claire should be part of this conversation or let's invite Claire to this meeting or let's make sure that we give her time on the agenda um, because they respect my voice and are advocating for the work that I do. Mm -hmm. But again, it's up to me to be prepared to take advantage of that opportunity. Yeah, and make them want to, to That's you right. know, recommend you. Right, so preparation is, is key, yeah. I think. Um, um, we're going to take another short break. When we come back, I want to, you do a lot of, um, you know, community work. We talked about that at the very top of the show and why that's important to you. Um, and you've worked with children, inner city uh, kids and the Covenant House. I want to talk about why that's important to you, how you see that connection to uh, the young Claire. Sure. We'll be right back with Claire Biermas, Vice President of Customer Insight and Innovation for Amerisource Bergen. Do you have a financial advisor who you trust that looks at you as more than just a number? At the Foley Hillsley Group, that person is Kristen Hillsley. Kristen's team has a different approach to managing your wealth called the Panorama Process. This unique process helps you obtain your financial goals easily because it's more than just investments, it's about you. To learn more, visit their website at fhbaird.com or call 610-238-6636. The Foley-Hilsey Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird & Company, Incorporated Member SIPC. Log on to fhbaird.com to learn more. That's fhbaird.com. So if you need a financial advisor you can trust, call Kristen Hillsley at 610-238-6636. That's 610-238-6636. So Claire, a lot of the work that you do is not only at um, Amerisource Bergen. You're, you're quite involved in the community and you talked about at the beginning of the show, the support you received from your own community mm -hmm. um, when you lost your, your sister. And so um, I want to be sure to mention some of the things that you do outside of your role there. And one of them is your affiliation and work with the Covenant House. Mm -hmm. Tell me why that, why you chose that particular organization. Well, I think that the Covenant House provides an enormous service to our young people who are struggling. Um, Covenant House is something that my grandfather actually got involved in, in the, the, uh, the building of Covenant, the first Covenant House in New York. And was that in the 1970s? Wanna, uh, probably yeah. late 70s, maybe early yeah. 80s. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure okay. about the timeline. Um, but, you know, it's super important to me to make sure that our young people understand that there are people out there that really care about them. Um, I have been through struggles in my life, but nowhere near some of the struggles that these young people have faced. Um, you know, I've interacted with young girls there that, you know, are homeless, 15 and, and pregnant, mm. and they are just looking for someone to believe in them. Um, they're looking for structure um, and a place that is safe, that can help provide the skills that they need 
to live on their own and an emotional support system. So for me, Covenant House um, and their outreach to homeless youth is just something that um, I connect with. Um, and I feel like provides an enormous service to our young people in the community. And, you know, so I, I give a lot to, to Covenant House. Um, financially, we've done, you know, executive sleepouts um, where, you know, a bunch of folks, uh, executives at different companies go and they, they sleep on uh, in the parking lot for a night just to know what it's like to, wow. to be homeless mm. um, and cold. Um, and to show those young people that there are people in their community that care. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think that that's a great message, something that makes me feel really good. And I, it's an organization that I think is amazing. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned um, a place to go where someone believes in you. And I think that's so very important. There are a lot of organizations that pro provide resources and education and services. But I always feel like kids at that space in their life the first step is someone who believes in them, right? Um, and then all of the other things will fall into place and they'll pay attention to them. Mm -hmm. Was there somebody, has there been somebody other than your husband mm -hmm. in your life that has, you know, believed in you and, and perhaps when you've had been second guessing um, yeah. enabled you to, to push through? Yeah. Well, you know, you always have your friends and family, right? Mm -hmm. But they're like a given, right? They're your like, sisters. they're just going to like love you. Yeah, right. Um, but, you know, I think I've, there's been two very specific mentors that I've had in my life. Um, one was my first boss at Amerisourceburg, and his name was Mike Kilpatrick. Um, he was the vice president of investor relations and, and hired. He was the one that hired me. And he was an incredible mentor to me. Um, he was almost like a professional father. Um, and he would always say to me, I believe in you. He would say, I believe in you and what you are capable of. And I believe in the perspectives that you bring. And I'm going to advocate on your behalf. Mm. Um, and then, you know, there's another, um, there's another very close friend of mine. I can call him a friend now. He's the president of Mercersburg and he's, uh, his name is Bob Motch. And he's really advocated for me uh, and given me opportunities that, um, show me how much he believes in the work that I do. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's so important to surround yourself with people that say, I see you and I believe that you're capable even when you are not really feeling like you're capable right. now. Yeah. And having those moments um, with folks that are outside of your immediate family mm -hmm. that can recognize something special about you and tell you that and um, support you even when you're feeling a little bit insecure yeah. about it's yourself. It makes a huge difference. Yeah. It really does, per personally and professionally. Absolutely. Um, I want you to, to talk about the uh, Gender Equity Committee that you started in your own community, Upper Dublin? Yes. Is it? Yeah, yes. I think that's fantastic. What are you going to be doing? Yeah, so um, a friend of mine, um, Lisa Curcio, she works at TD Bank. She and I got together and we decided that, you know, we – um, we advocate for women uh, at our businesses, but we should also advocate for women in our communities. And what better way to do that than to get at, you know, get access to our young girls and to try and figure out partner with other teachers and faculty and other um, moms and you know professional working women in our community and form a committee uh, that advocates for girls to be curious about um, things that they might be passionate about. Uh, we're working on things like getting um, our young girls more access to uh, science, technology, engineering, and STEM, math. STEM, very right? good. Right. So yeah. advocating for um, girls who are interested in that, uh, 
to be able to have um, options for learning, um, support in in uh, understanding what how to deal with their gender roles, kind of like in the the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we just we've just started, right? So this is a new thing that we've launched this year. Um, but we're super excited about it. And the more people we tell about it, the more women want to get involved. And we have a ton of different ideas. And we're just so excited to be able to influence and, and advocate and, and help our young girls. In can, our you, can you give the district. contact information real quick if someone's listening and wants to be involved? Uh, well, they can email me personally. Okay. So you can email me at cbeermas, B-I-E-R-M-A-A-S, at gmail.com. Okay. And we'll share that with our uh, with our listeners. Thank you so much, Claire. It was great fun to have you in here. It's all good stuff that you're doing and great advice for our listeners. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much for having me. Women to Watch. Now we're going to turn to Dr. Marianne Ritchie, who's here for our Health Watch, and she's going to do some uh, follow-up from last week's segment on uh, breast cancer and her family history. Thanks, Sue. I started to say my one sister, Judy, had a routine mammogram and they found a small cancer on one side, but the mammogram also showed lymph nodes under both of her arms, which led to an MRI and a cancer in her other side. I called my other sister, Judy's twin, Tony. When was your last mammogram? Oh, it was fine a month ago. I said, no, no, no. If I have to pay cash, you're getting an MRI. And that's when we found her small, subtle breast cancer as well. So mammograms are still the best imaging technique to find breast cancer, but there's good news. First of all, there's less radiation since it was developed in 1965. It's now digital in most centers, and that helps us to enlarge the images and even brighten them, almost like Photoshopping, so we can better find abnormalities. Breast implants, for those of you who have had them, there are new, what are called displacement views that give us better information when we have to look around those implants for breast cancers. Sometimes we add an ultrasound for women who have dense breasts. Now, Half of America has dense breasts. There are grades of density. Some women have none, small amount, moderate amount, extreme amount. And so mammograms do not always see through the density. And ultrasound can better distinguish density from hidden abnormalities. They can also help distinguish solid lesions from just friendly cysts. Jefferson has fantastic breast centers, both in Center City on campus and at Methodist. We have 3D mammograms and 3D ultrasounds. Dr. Alex Severkov was giving me a mini symposium on these topics before I speak. And um, he is outstanding, as are all of our uh, radiologists who do breast imaging. And finally, an MRI is a very sensitive study that picks up more than 90% of abnormalities. But we reserve that for high-risk patients, not just because it's more costly, but it can be uncomfortable, uh, especially if you're claustrophobic. It is so sensitive, it can pick up lesions that are not cancerous, what we call false positives, which leads to more testing and cost, and so we reserve them for special cases. So remember, if symptoms develop, breast pain, skin changes, puckering in your skin, nipple discharge, lumps under your arm, in your breasts, over your collarbones, call your doctor immediately. Don't depend on a normal mammogram that you had within the past year. Good advice. As always, thank you so much, Dr. Ritchie. We really appreciate these segments. And that's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Thank you again to Claire Biermas from Amerisource Bergen, who was my guest. Have a great week, and thanks for tuning in to The Real Story Behind Her Title. 
This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.